Welcome to the One Haas Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee. One Haas is a Berkeley Haas Podcast production by alumni for alumni. Today, we're joined by Manish Chandra of the Evening MBA Class of 95. And to give our listeners some context, Manish was scheduled to speak at our annual alumni conference on April 25th. However, due to COVID-19, the conference has been moved online. But the silver lining is that we get to have him on the show today in our inaugural episode of the Alumni Podcast. Manish is the founder and CEO of Poshmark, a leading social commerce platform for the next generation of retailers and shoppers. Prior to Poshmark, Manish founded Caboodle, the first social shopping company, which was acquired by Hearst Corporation in 2007. Before Caboodle, he held executive positions at Versant, Versata, and Sybase. Manish received his bachelor's from the engineering school IIT Kanpur in India, his master's from UT Austin, and an MBA from our very own Haas School of Business. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Sean. Manish was born in India and moved to Austin, Texas when he was 19. He grew up in small towns in India where his father was a judge, his mother was a homemaker, and his grandfather was an entrepreneur, which made for a very interesting childhood. I used to roam around in the shops in in Delhi growing up. And uh, so I was exposed to sort of shopping and entrepreneurship, you know, even from the childhood days. When I came here, I was uh, more focused on technology. And sort Mm -hmm. of that's where I started my schooling. I see. And, you know, just walk us a little bit more through what you did before Haas, uh, exactly what you did in tech. Sure. So my first job was as a software programmer building database software for Intel. That was Mm -hmm. back in 1989. I arrived in Silicon Valley. That was my very first job. Within a year, sort of, I realized that Intel is going to move away from building database software. They're going to buy databases. And they Mm -hmm. were looking at companies like Oracle and Sybase. And so I wanted to work for one of these companies. I didn't want to work for someone who was buying database. I want to be in the database software business. So I interviewed and got a job at Sybase. And right before I was about to transition from Intel to Sybase, I got a call from recruiter, which is, I think, pretty relevant for these times. Mm -hmm. And the recruiter said that, you know, we've just laid off 10 to 15 percent of the company because these are harsh times. But you still have a job if you want to come. Right. And I said, are they still paying me the same money? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, I wanted to live in Berkeley. I wanted to work for a database software company. I had no idea what a venture funded business was. I didn't know that they were living on just venture debt at that point in time. <laughs> and I joined the company. It was one of the best decisions I made. You know, it ended up creating some interesting opportunities. I was, you know, fairly young in my career. And because they had taken out a lot of the staffing, there was just so much work to do. So I worked 17, 18 hours a day but pretty rapidly scaled up in the company. So I went from software engineer, became an architect and started to lead people and then became one of sort of the chief architects in the company all in the course of five years. Wow. And the recession was a one or two year recession. And then it actually bounced back and the company went public. It was sort of my first IPO in the Valley that I saw as a, as a junior guy, you know, helping right. buy my first house in the Valley. And it started an interest in tech and sort of uh, early stage startups. And that whole journey became very exciting. And from there, I. Um, joined a much smaller company started just here in Oakland uh, called Versada. And that was building database tools. And we went through both the boom of 2000, but prior to that, a depression in 98, and then sort of the depression of 2001. 
Mm-hmm. And so I saw the full thing. We grew from eight people to 600-person company, took the company public at the peak of 2000. And by end of 2001, the company had shrunk dramatically because of the recession that was going on in 9-11. And uh, I actually had been there at the company for seven years and decided to leave right before the 9-11 tragedy. And then when 9-11 happened, there was almost no jobs in the Valley. There was like wow. zero jobs. And even a job you would get, it was very hard to sort of understand whether it was stable or not. And for any listeners who may have forgotten the timeline, the tech bubble had bursted in March of 2000. And then the 9-11 tragedy happened 60 months later in September of 2001. What's interesting in Manisha's story is that he learned very quickly to be scrappy and adaptable in these difficult times. So I took a step back. I had two young kids. I had a mortgage. I had to figure out what to do. Right. And what I did was I created, a, I think, a human time-sharing system of my skill set. So I would go to different CEOs and, you know, I was trying to get consulting gigs from them. And they'd say, I don't have any budget. I love you, but I don't have any budget. I said, how much budget do you have? And they give me a small number, which would probably pay for like a day and a half my time. I said, why don't I work for you a day a month? And so collecting this time-sharing thing, I was able to market myself for about twice my previous salary. So I was making wow. twice that money and I was time slicing myself. So I became the AWS of product management and marketing <laughs> in Silicon Valley. I was working with about a dozen or so companies. And one of the companies I was working with, the chief operating officer came to me and said, hey, you're working with all of these startups. And for a set of reasons, we would like to sort of merge with another company or buy a smaller company, which can help accelerate growth. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up thinking through and one of the companies I was working with was really a partner. So I ended up playing a role of investment banker the next year and brought these wow. companies together. This company acquired the company and I joined them as the VP of marketing. And in that journey of two years, I ended up spending some time. We bought a home and we were remodeling it. And from there, sort of my insight was that the entire shopping experience was quite broken. Right. And and I sort of had this insight of creating this collaborative social experience. And I kept writing thoughts around it, product strategy. I just kept throwing them away. I said, I'm an enterprise software guy. What what business do I have to do something consumer? I don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. But after six months, the bug wouldn't go away. It just would not go away. Around what year was this? This was uh, 2000, late 2003, early 2004. So a long time back. And, you know, so many of my use cases are sort of things we do even at Poshmark, but sort of are very advanced looking. And what happens when you have an idea is you start to feel like everything looks like a nail to your hammer. So it felt like it could solve world hunger. So I said, man, this is not like working. I can't sleep without it. I have to do something. So that's sort of how the Caboodle journey sort of started. I see. Before we jump into Poshmark, you know, I really want to hear, I'm sure our listeners are curious as well. Now, what led you to Haas? Uh, were you working at Sybase at that time, or were you still at Intel when you were doing the evening program? So I was actually at Sybase. So, so I was just um, had just joined Sybase in '92, and I just you know really wanted to get a purview of the business. So I, I felt like I was you know spent a lot of time studying technology, and I wanted to do a business. My wife you know was very supportive, and I just said, "Let me do this." and Turned out to be a fairly long journey. You know, the part-time program is not an easy journey. It takes about four years from the time you do the prereqs, do all of these things. I'm not sure exactly how it's structured now, but that time it took four years. And so uh, I worked and, and went to school. And Haas, in those days, back in 92, 93, was actually not located on campus. It was located in the Tenderloin area. Hmm. And so my distinct memories are walking over people going to classes in the evening 
and then uh, sort of walking as groups and getting everyone into their cars before I took Bart back home. Wow. And uh, only in the last year did we move to the main campus because the building got constructed and we sort of were there. And so we kind of were the early, early students in that building. In, in Chide Hall. Yeah. <laughs> and when I came to school, Chu Hall just opened. So it's. Oh, it's, wow. Yeah, I, I felt very lucky <laughs> as well. <laughs> we take a pause here to hear about Caboodle, the company Manish sold to Hearst Corporation in 2007. This was sort of Manish's birth as an entrepreneur. At the time, Caboodle was changing the landscape of online shopping by connecting people with similar tastes and tying together the entire shopping process from product discovery to purchase. To give our listeners a sense of Manisha's foresight in this industry and how quickly Caboodle grew, it started around 2004-2005, and by 2006, when Manisha's team launched the public beta, the site already had more than 2 million unique visitors per month. So the Caboodle journey I was talking about started in 2004-2005. And uh, what we did was going from enterprise software to consumer software. And I had to change my entire mindset uh, from enterprise to consumer because uh, I was going from a business which was all about productivity, efficiency, you know, sort of refinement and improvement and very defined customers who you could have a conversation with to something that was built from an emotional perspective where people had to connect at a deeper level and, mm. and sort of engage. Still had productivity characteristics, but it was a lot different. And uh, the way I kind of approached that was I formed a small group of people who were people who could bring me the knowledge from these areas, whether it was, you know, how to process web technology and web pages or people who could bring consumer insights, et cetera. And these were sort of more people that I brought in and ultimately became part of my team. And then the second group I did was surround myself with experts. So these are people who knew consumer internet, people like Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, mm-hmm. uh, James Carrier, who's, you know, runs NFX. Etc. And so that allowed me to draw wisdom from these two groups of people. And some of them became investors and advisors as I started Caboodle. That's wow. sort of my general approach is, you know, when I come up with an idea and kind of come up with the things, I want to surround myself with the best people, whether they are people who are my co-founders or people who end up just joining the team or people who are becoming advisor investors. And so Caboodle ultimately grew, but this was early days of internet. And in 2007, got acquired by Hearst, who came knocking on the door. And we had partnerships with Condé Nast, and we were basically becoming social shopping, but kind of like more like a magazine. So right. it was more content. Think of it as the modern-day version of Caboodle would be Pinterest, right? And right. so it, it was something where you could collect information, you visually shop, et cetera. But the actual transaction would happen at the target site. So you'd click through and go to like Nordstrom or, or, or what, what have you. And what we saw in the last sort of year or so when I was with Caboodle is a lot of people wanted to do the transaction on Caboodle. And so we tried to create some transactional experience, and then people were posting links to their listings on Craigslist and stuff. And many of our, it became an enthusiastic community of a couple of million, primarily women. We had uh, we had some men as well, and they were basically sharing shopping, engaging with each other, and wanting to transact, but couldn't really transact effectively on the platform. We had some HTML that it could cut, cut and copy, but it was not sort of super simple. Mm-hmm. So end of '09, like six months or so before I was leaving Caboodle, Another person and I sort of were conceptualizing what what would make sense. And one of the ideas we came up with at that point was sort of this vision of how to redefine shopping and make it much more like magazine where people could buy and sell from each other. It's very visual, but everything else under the cover is taken care of for you. So you don't have to worry about shipping, payments, returns, anything else. And and mobile was just starting to happen in 09. It was not sort of there. You still were on iPhone 3. 
So when I looked around, I said, you know, in 09, I said, ah, there's no easy way to create this content. We'd have to go license it from Nordstrom. You can license it from Caboodle if I left Caboodle. Uh, but just it was no easy way. It's kind of put the idea on hold. Right. Then fast forward to 10, it was spring of 10. And I said, you know, next business I want to do is largely in the intersection of fashion and technology because Caboodle had been a journey where I was passionate about community, but it taught me some about fashion. And certainly this intersection of technology, fashion, and community came together in Caboodle. But I also thought that for this round, I want to really partner with someone who understands fashion. And certainly mm -hmm. I had lots of people who understood technology and I understood product, technology, fashion, business, you know, at a higher level. So I intentionally sought out groups of people who could work through. And I said, what are the co-founders I want to create? And I didn't have a concrete idea at that point. It has to be sort of natively be there in fashion. Mm -hmm, and on the mm -hmm. technology side, my mindset was to partner with some of my old co-founders from Caboodle and then maybe find someone else. And so just kept looking at different things. And my first investor, Mayfield, introduced me to my co-founder, Tracy's son, who came from a deep fashion background. So she grew up in the New York fashion thing, was a merchant, you know, at the founding of a couple of different fashion brands, had done some fashion tech and just relocated to the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And I met with a bunch of people and it was harder to meet fashion people at that time in the Bay Area. Still is hard. And Tracy and I instantly clicked. And so I convinced her to sort of join this, this journey with me. And she joined there. And then I ended up partnering with a couple of folks who are my co-founders who come from a deep tech background, Chetan and Gotham. And that's sort of how the journey started. And as we were visiting different ideas that I had, I was on a vacation and I saw iPhone 4, which was sort of the first high-res device and high camera. And I saw this friend of mine who was able to take a picture take the picture of birds we were on vacation and immediately post it. And sort of that fast speed of upload, beautiful rendering gave me to think that this thing is really a device where we need, can finally see creation of content, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then I was at my son's high school game and the high school homecoming queen talked a little bit about how she had thrifted this dress and she's wearing this beautiful yellow dress. And all of that clicked and brought me back to this idea, which I was looking at about a year, year in the back. And so I brought that idea forward, and now the technology was ready. And I went to Tracy and, and the other folks, and I said, guys, this is the thing. And before, they were pushing back on all the different ideas I had, but this one, they just kind of latched on. They said, this is the thing. And then Tracy worked quickly came up with some of the mocks, which are still sitting in. If you come to my Poshmark page, you can see some of that stuff. And, right. and just it, it became so real very quickly, and we couldn't find any flaws in the ideas. So we started to move very rapidly. And that's sort of how Poshmark came to be in its early days. What were some of the memorable challenges that you faced in these early days? And I ask that because, you know, you make it sound easy, but from the get-go, you built a two-sided marketplace, right? Well, so there were several bets we made. You know, I was pretty enamored that mobile is the future back in 2010. And I said, we're going to bet 100% on mobile. I know it felt like forever ago, but at that time in 2009, the iPhone had only been around for two years. And in 2008, only 11.6 million units were sold worldwide and 20 million in 2009. Today, there are 3.5 billion smartphone users in the world, making up 45% of the world's population. I just knew that this is, this is the thing. And I was also enamored at that time. There's a little app called Instagram that had just launched. I was like totally fascinated with it back in August, September. It just sort of launched. And uh, it kind of showed the way for some of the work that we were going to do. And it kind of showed how you could do it. So for six months, actually, I gave up my computer. I said, I'm going to only live on an iPhone and an iPad. It was very hard to do. Uh, but it proved to wow. me that the world is going to get there because I could do banking. I could do everything. The only thing I couldn't do was Microsoft Excel. 
but I could do almost everything else on those two devices. And so that was the first big bet we made. The second bet we made was we wanted to keep the entire shipping architecture simple. And if you look at our very first deck, it basically talks about this flat shipping system that we created, which is the foundation of Poshmark. And uh, we had a lot of debate. Tracy and I kind of went back and forth. We researched, and Tracy literally got, you know, I think eight or 10 different items and weighed them to figure out what would be the average weight of different fashion items. Because my mm -hmm. thesis was, you know, if you, if you think of a girl and she wakes up and she wants to sell a dress, she doesn't want to go find a weighing scale, put in a mm -hmm. weighing scale and figure out how much will it cost me to weigh. She just wanted to ship it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that had to be provided for her. And then the third thing, which was there in sort of the whole thing was, I was, of course, very passionate about community. So I wanted it to be very social experience because I felt fashion can't scale without social experience. Mm -hmm. And so the whole premise of it was a social shopping experience. And that took some debate because some of the concepts we were creating there were very far advanced. So that was sort of the whole idea. And one of the ways we were going to market the product initially was to do something called five at five. The idea was to get women to bring in their five items from their closet at five o'clock and then mm. we would teach them how to list right and we did a couple of these events and in fact this was so early in the evolution of mobile that most people didn't have a phone wow so we actually ended up buying a hundred ipod videos which was the pre predecessor to iphone and incredibly mm. uh, inexpensive at that time compared to iphone which was so expensive and ended up giving that to some of the beta testers which we never got back but it became a gift to them so they could actually create content because most of them wow. didn't have the phones to do that and then as we were doing it, what we saw was that these live events were very powerful. And then I was looking at an application and sort of synthesized it. One of the things I like to do is synthesize different things and create something new from it. And so I synthesized those concepts and came up with this idea of virtual posh party. And these were live events where people could list in real time and, and look at real time. And by that time, we had another member of our team, Leanne, who heads up our community and joined the journey. So I turned to Leanne and Tracy and I said, guys, I want to try to host these virtual posh parties. And so they brainstormed and started to basically post up on Facebook to get users mm -hmm. of the system. And literally, we would take a picture of a stick it note and say, this is a party. It's like a tops and dresses party. And Tracy would stand here, Leanne would stand here. They'd take a picture. And that's how the parties would start. And initially, mm -hmm. like three users would show up for this thing. And you couldn't even shop there because we didn't have payments built up. But people would come. And we started to get almost like full-time engagement. Parties would run for an hour. And they'd just sit there, wait. And and look at everything and people would start to list at that time and they'd grab some wine glasses and sit offline. Somebody would, you know, send their kids to with their husband and sort of be attentive to the party all the time. So it was a pretty engaging experience. And we were initially going to launch, I think, in September or October. And I said, mm -hmm. I can't launch without this. Right. And we have to productize this. And there was no productization. So that was one of the hardest productization exercises because there was nothing like that in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took so many stresses and breakage and Designers were frustrated, but finally we got it all ready and shipped it out in December of 2011 is when the app first hit the market as an iPhone app with posh parties in it, with the ability to, to buy and sell. And we didn't know what would happen, but there was no marketing tool. But the thing which we saw from day one was that every user who joined the system who started to become active would spend somewhere around 20 minutes on the app. Wow. And many of them were both buying and selling, despite there was no search button. There was like very little. So you had to actually browse through literally the whole feed to find items and items mm -hmm. were selling. And even though there was no marketing tools and there was a lot of stuff with postage and, and payments and other things, 
it just gave me the confidence that this thing is going to fly because the number one rule for any consumer business is deep user engagement because you can't buy that. You can you can figure out a way to pay to get growth, but that deep consumer engagement is either a characteristic of something you built where you tapped into a natural need or not. Right. That's amazing. Actually, that, that answers my question. Your, your buyers are also your sellers. There's a huge overlap. That's beautiful. So the company's been around for over a decade now. It's definitely seen a lot of ups and downs, I imagine, in, in the economy. How do you manage stress and uncertainty as a business leader? You know, I think there's a few things. I think one is just being sort of seen the world. There's sort of a wisdom to know that this too shall pass and there's a way to sort of get through it. And mm-hmm. there is stress and you sometimes you can sort of reduce stress and sometimes you have to just manage and acknowledge that there's stress. You know, like, for example, these present times is intensely stressful, right? Mm-hmm. So just being aware of the circumstance and sort of knowing that this thing is not unique to you, it's sort of happening at different points in different people's uh, phases. Uh, second thing is, you know, finding some time to do something physical, whether it's exercise or meditation. You know, I've been a meditator since high school. And then uh, the third thing is, of course, family, which is, you know, sort of connects you and always brings joy. And so those are the three things that are, that you use. At the same time, I think your your support system is there. I mean, nobody creates anything there. The reason you have co-founders is, is that you they, they become your points of support. You know, my co-founders in both the companies have been amazing points of support at various points in the journey. You have advisors and mentors that you can turn to for advice, you know, that, right. that can give you some perspective. And there have been many advisors and mentors in my journey who've been amazing. And then um, I think you have to just sort of sometimes just, you know, grind through it. There are days that there is nothing in. I remember one time in, in, in Poshmark's journey where it was extremely sort of stressful time and I just didn't know who could even understand my situation because it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And I remember just walking around the building and just having a good cry myself because I just didn't know what to do. And it was that frustrating. And, uh, and then it was fine, you know, just went back and started cranking it out. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think I personally needed to hear that. <laughs> Going going through my journey with this uh, the podcasting business, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely crazy times. You know these are yeah. these are probably the most intense times I have seen in my life. You know, and I I certainly have seen a lot of intense times. So hang in there. Did you always know you want to become an entrepreneur? You know, I didn't, uh, but I've had these instincts in my thing. So, so the word entrepreneur was not. The thing which was appealing to me, it was more like I'm an ideas guy. So, you know, thinking about how do you turn ideas into reality. So, yeah. there was a couple of things I knew. You know, so for example, when I was growing up in my neighborhood, you know, we used to sort of connect with neighbors, and I used to move around every two, three years. So, I had to find new friends and connect with them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I figured out, I think it was in middle school or high school, I was there in a new town, and you know, just to kind of get to know people, I started this this little newsletter where I would talk about each person in each of the kids in the community. It was kind of like a little mini people magazine and it became really popular and I was able to charge like 25 pesos. But I didn't think of it as an entrepreneurship. I think of it as a way to connect with humanity and people. And I think it's sort of the same way I think about Poshmark is how do you connect with community? How do you build something that's helpful to people? And that turns into entrepreneurship and business in some ways. Well, that goes into what you were slated to talk about, right, at the alumni conference on the subject of pioneering social shopping by focusing on people. Can you share with us some of the highlights or key takeaways of your speech? 
if you think of retail, if you step back and look at retail and, and take not a five, 10 year horizon, but take a 30 to 50 year horizon, retail used to be the neighborhood store, right? Retail used to be where you walk into the neighborhood store and Tom, who was running the hardware store, would sort of know that you're building a backyard deck. And sort mm -hmm. of as you walked in, he would say, hey, here's a little hammer, Manish. And I just got this from Germany. It'd be perfect for you. And you might buy it or not buy it. But there was sort of this very personalized merchandising, social right. interactions, and a high-touch sort of way of, of buying and selling because every store had a human being. Or you would walk into a boutique and, you know, and, and they would say, hey, Manish, here's a suit for you. I know you're going to your brother's wedding. And, and it's just perfect for you. And you sort of walk in there. And that sort of whole merchandising, clienteling, humans was called social, but nobody thought of it as social. It was just community. You supported your local community. It was <laughs> life. It was, it was exactly the way retail should be. Retail is life. And we're all missing it right now in this world of COVID. But we can provide you online on Poshmark. But you sort of go to the next generation and stores became bigger and bigger and less and less personal and became more and more about product and mass product merchandising. People started disappearing from store. You just go pick up everything and soon people really disappeared. And now today you don't even have to pick up the product or talk to anybody. You just kind of scan the product and, and walk out. And then came e-commerce and e-commerce was even less personal. So you sort of put the product up and products were sort of merchandise. It's catalog, mm -hmm. product pricing, price discounting, some algorithms, personalizing, et cetera. What social shopping does, it, it brings the, the beauty of that local shops and the local retail experience online, while at the same time preserving the scalability, the discoverability, the smoothness, the ease of use of online together. So you get the best of both worlds. And it's sort of, to me, the social shop is the shop of the next generation. And that's what a Poshmark is doing. It's, it's really taking retail into the next thing. And at the same time, what social shopping is doing is bringing the world of what I would say is local communities, conservation, you know, frugality and beautiful merchandising and discovery. So we're empowering resellers who can resell stuff from their closet, resell stuff that they source to be eco-conscious and thrift and, and not let anything go to waste mm -hmm. and empowering local boutiques and designers and, and sellers or even the bigger sellers and bigger brands out there as their local stores become sort of more vulnerable, which nobody could have thought that this crisis would make every store in the world simultaneously vulnerable allow them to create that same human high-touch branded experience in an online world. So this marketplace becomes sort of in some ways a very social mall, but it's a mall right. which is very democratic as well because anybody can participate in it. And we take care of all of the plumbing so you can focus on clientele and interacting with your customers. And that's how the beauty is created in Poshmark. That's amazing. You know, when, when I launched my e-commerce business, um, this was around 10 years ago as well, I was wondering like who's going to solve this problem of, of social shopping because when you go to the mall it is a very social experience right and and e-commerce is taking that away but little did i know poshmark was was already on top of that <laughs> yeah we, we've been sort of uh, this vision has been there in my mind since i got the insight in caboodle but we've been innovating and so most recently one of the things we've launched on the platform and we'll be launching is we're bringing photos and videos together so you know because where you see the formats moving is you've got photos you've got videos you've got uh, styling where people want to have that conversation so it's a program where we sort of every year or so innovated and kind of added because social is not a static experience it's sort of it's really dynamic and it boils down to the state of technology state of customer acceptance and the pieces you could build these features three years back and there would be acceptance just like you know if you look at the the rise of online video or, or podcasts, for example, right? If you think right. about what we are doing right now, I mean, how much time do we spend listening to podcasts now? And the format has been around for a long time, but it's the right kind of consumption, technology, distribution, 
ease of usage, maybe even these headphones we are using, you know, and stuff like that. It's just, it's a very powerful sort of system. So social shopping itself has, I think, been coming of age. And I think fortunate for online retail, I think social shopping is going to just really explode because we're all becoming sort of virtual in a weird kind of way in this in this new age. Mm -hmm. So to that point of, you know, the current environments, especially for Haas graduates, you know, what advice do you have for future Haas leaders? Or, you know, what advice would you have given yourself uh, at graduation? And, and I, I have to preface this with the fact that you've, you've seen probably at least three, if not four, downturns mm -hmm. in your lifetime, in your time mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. I think, you know, everything that happens to us is a blessing, even though it's sometimes it feels like a curse, right? So a little bit of it is a perspective. I think graduating in these insane times is very difficult. So much is being canceled. So, you know, jobs are sort of certainly evaporated. We have one of the highest unemployment rates in the country and, and potentially in the world. You have to step back and say, you know, what do I do? I've just spent, you know, multiple years retooling myself to to be ready for something amazing. And I think the word I use is adaptable. And you have to have an adaptable mindset because circumstances and, and as the proverbial cheese moves around. And so the, the question is, you know, there's two different ways to think about it. And that's how we even think about our business. What's my short-term strategy? And short-term strategy and long-term strategy are slightly different. Short-term strategy is, you know, how do I survive in this thing? You know, what do I do? And as I mm -hmm. said, you know, for me to survive back in 2002, I had to time slice myself. If I'd been following a standard paradigm of looking for a job, I have been unemployed for six months. And I was right. employed in small pieces with 20 people. So think about how you redefine yourself to survive for the short term. It doesn't change your long term. You're still a Haas graduate. You're going to have amazing opportunities, but you have to kind of think through short term. And that that's adaptability. The second thing is, what do these circumstances create, which is a unique and once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? And that calls into sort of understanding where the world is going. And that takes a little bit of an open-mindedness to sort of observe what's happening. Like to me, and I'm talking to this amazing technology and platform called Squadcast, I'm very curious as to how it's working. And I think being curious about what's happening is super important because each of them may give you some something and you can synthesize to create something else. So I think there's going to be opportunities. And one of the things that, you know, some of my mentors have shared with me, and it's my perspective as well, is people essentially don't change at a fundamental needs level. You know, we still want to grow up. We want to eat food. We want to connect with each other. We want to wear clothes of some kind. You know, we want to get married. We want to have kids. We want to sort of connect. We want to succeed. We want to buy something. We want to live good. We want to sort of do things. And what they are changes, you know, what it was maybe a thousand years back change, a hundred years back change, what's going to happen in the next 20 years will change. But that fundamental cycle of life continues in whatever form. And in that are massive opportunities for revolution and transformation. And the world is infinite source of prosperity. So if you change your mind from thinking that the current circumstances are a curse and re-pivot to thinking that current circumstances are a blessing and focus on what you want as opposed to what you don't have, chances are you'll create a beautiful life for yourself. To end the podcast on a lighter note, <laughs> we like to do this lightning round of Q&A. So this is just quick, quick and dirty. <laughs> What's a favorite book, article, or digital content that you've consumed lately? My favorite book of all times is Alchemist. Uh, by Paulo mm -hmm. Colo. Um, yes. The latest article I read is actually 
a set of insight, I think it's called Asymptotic Intent or Asymptotic Curve by Eugene Wei, who was one of the earlier uh, data scientists at Amazon. What's your favorite stress relieving activity? You might have already mentioned this. Meditation? Uh, it's meditation. It's definitely meditation. I also love uh, listening to new music. So, for example, Fridays, I usually, you know, go on Spotify and listen and get some new music and download. And I'm always sort of listening to new artists and new music. So that's also fun for me. That's actually my next question is, you know, do you have a favorite band or genre of music? Uh, it's, it keeps evolving. I'm sort of very open to it. Um, right now, I would say on the pop side, I'm very fascinated with uh, Billie Eilish, you know, in terms of sort of what she's bringing to the table in mm -hmm. terms of old school. One of my favorite artists from, from, from my sort of youth is uh, U2 and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, especially their songs with the streets of no name. <laughs> and lastly, the Haas defining leadership principle that resonates the strongest with you of the four? I think the thing that appeals to me the most is beyond yourself. And that's really about bringing and thinking about the world as a whole and a community as a whole, and really thinking about not just what is in it for me, but what is in it for all of us. And I think particularly in these times where we're faced with this massive health crisis, I think we have to think beyond sort of what we are and how the whole can benefit from what we are trying to do. And it's really, really important for us to keep in mind, especially as we come out of a class like an MBA class. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Manish. Thank you, Sean. Thanks so much.